You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. New City family, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're kicking off our time in the letter of 1 Peter. If you're new to the Bible, find James and you're really close, okay? I think it's it's uh, just right of James. It's right, right after James is where we'll pick up. Uh, once you get there, we're going to start out, we're just going to read the text. We are Bible people around here because that's where we most reliably hear God's voice is in his word. And so we want to be about that. Um, if, uh, if y'all are able, go ahead and stand in reverence for the reading of God's word this morning. We're going to be in the first two verses today. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. Y'all can have a seat this morning. Well, one of my favorite parts of living here in Champaign-Urbana is that it's an unbelievably diverse city. And a university, as you know, tends to bring people uh, from all over the world to live here. And so one of the great privileges of my life and ministry is getting to sit down with those people and hear the stories of the courage that it takes to literally hop on a plane, move thousands of miles uh, from any sense of security, any sense of home to really start over in going to school. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys this morning. I'm a bit of a hopeless Midwesterner, okay? And so here's what that means. I grew up three hours away from here, but I might as well live on the moon. Three hours is, it feels like an eternity away, okay? So um, I grew up in a very rural context, and so there have been some things that I've had to get used to living in a more urban environment here, just a couple of them. Number one, um, that when people walk by your house and they're talking at night, it doesn't mean they're there to kill you. Okay, that's just normal. That's just somebody taking a walk. Where I grew up, uh, houses are like a mile apart. So if you heard somebody talking outside your house at night, you always checked out the window with a rifle because that's just how we rolled. My poor neighbors now that get so, I'm kidding, I don't don't do that, okay? Um, The other thing has been parallel parking, okay? So we, we did some parallel parking in Southern Illinois, to be fair, but usually it was just like the back of the Walmart parking lot that was empty, and I just pulled sideways across spots because there's nobody else there. So that was as close to parallel parking as I did. So I get here, and I pull up, and I'm like, okay, okay well, here we go. I, Jesus, take the wheel, full blast on the radio, and I just, I just go for it, right? These are, these are sort of trivial uh, examples of what it's been like getting used to living in a more urban context. How much greater the gap for someone living across the world from their home than me living three hours away. This is what it's like to live as an exile. The audience of the book of 1 Peter finds themselves with us this morning, 
wrestling with the pains and challenges of having an eternal citizenship in heaven as a follower of Jesus in a world that runs in a completely opposite direction. You felt this. I don't know if you know this or not, but being a Christian in Champaign-Urbana is not the most popular label you can stick next to your name. And if we're not careful, we can start to think of that struggle, that angst of living in exile as a punishment rather than as an opportunity. So why are we in exile? Ultimately, yes, it's because we trace our roots back to the Garden of Eden. We were separated from God, but now God is using that sin sinlessly to accomplish his purposes in the world. This little introduction right here in 1 Peter is meant to fill us with courage this morning and remind us that our isolation in this world as Christians is not a punishment from God, but rather it is his attack plan to save those who are far from him. You know what an exile does? An exile lives by different values, by different customs, and under a different authority than everyone else around them. This is exactly what Jesus modeled for us, and this is who he's calling us to be as his people. What if God actually ordained our exile for the sake of the world around us? What if the struggle and suffering that you experience as a follower of Jesus is a means to an end that will matter forever? Jesus coming into this world is the definitive proof that God is not afraid to get involved in the mess in this world. So how do we thrive in exile? How do we do it? The book of 1 Peter will be like marching orders for us. And today we get to unpack some of God's heart for his people, some of his heart for us who are broken by a broken world and living in exile. Here's the outline. If you're a note taker, thriving in exile, we're going to see three things today. The author, the audience, and the assurance. Three things we're going to unpack together. Number one, the author. Look back at the Bible. In verse one, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's stop here. That could be a sermon in and of itself, right? If we just unpack that, what is Peter's origin story? It's going to matter for us as we start understanding the depth of his book. We meet Peter for the first time, whose birth name was Simon in Luke chapter five. And he's just a normal fisherman. Okay. He's out doing his thing. He's casting out nets, not having any luck. And Jesus shows up and calls him to follow him. That's where we meet him. Just a normal fisherman. But here's the thing we learn pretty quickly. Our boy Peter is just borderline crazy. Okay. He's just a, a little bit nuts. And that should give you a ton of hope for your own life. If you're like, I'm a little bit nuts. God can still use you. This guy ends up an apostle, one of the founders of the church. Our friend Peter is a mixed bag. He is emotionally erratic, and yet he is also filled with this passion that God uses. He's often way too quick to speak. So he spends a lot of the Bible with his foot in his mouth, even after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But in the next breath, as soon as he takes the foot out of his mouth, he is used to speak the wisdom of God into the world. 
Matthew 16 is one of the clearest pictures of who our friend Peter is. So in Matthew 16, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he starts asking them, who are people saying that I am? What are they saying about me? And so the disciples start to lift, list off some of the popular theories of the day. And they're like, well, some say you're the second coming of one of the ancient prophets. Um, some say you're like uh, just a new teacher on the scene who's, who's like correcting the church, like a prophet like that. But then Jesus asks a question that's really significant for all of us this morning. He looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Imagine Jesus looking at you this morning and saying, who do you say that I am? What would you say? And Peter, with the wisdom of heaven, he looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Savior, the Son of the living God. And look what Jesus does. This is verse 17 in Matthew 16. It says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This erratic, borderline crazy guy is hearing from heaven in this moment. And this is where Jesus definitively changes his name. Look at verse 18. It says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Simon, his birth name, if it was literally translated in Aramaic, you know what it means? It means pebble. Think of like a rock in your driveway. You know what Peter means literally translated? rock. In a phrase, Jesus is overhauling Simon's identity. He's looking at him. He's saying, man, I know you're flighty. I know you're unstable. I know you're a mess. I know you're a pebble. You can't hold much weight, but I'm going to use you to change the world. In my economy, you're going to be a rock on your confession that I am the savior of the world. I'm going to build a movement. Peter never recovered from this in the best way. He couldn't get over it. As we work through the book of first Peter, what you're going to see is Peter using a lot of building metaphors and stone metaphors and rock metaphors to describe the people of God and the work that God is doing in him. That one encounter with Jesus shaped the way that Peter saw God forever. He couldn't get over it. He couldn't get over it. But a new identity takes some time to take root, doesn't it? You notice that? Like you're not all of a sudden, you don't just behave differently because you've got a new identity. Look what happens immediately after. And literally, like these are verses apart in Matthew 16. Right after he says, you are the son of the living God. Hey, that's from heaven, Peter. Great job. Here's what happens next. Look at verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh-oh. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, this is just a pro tip. It's not even part of the sermon. If you start rebuking Jesus, you're wrong. Okay, don't do it. Don't do it. In the course of 10 verses, Jesus has said to the same guy, the wisdom of God is in you. And then, hey, you are an instrument in the hands of the devil right now. Isn't that your life? <laughs> A mixed bag, right? This guy, this guy who ends up denying that he even knows Jesus in his greatest moment of need is used to pen the words of the New Testament is used to lead the early church to birth it into the world. You need to see something principally in all this. In those few short words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, God uses messes to accomplish his mission. He uses messes. So being a mess doesn't disqualify you, friend. It actually makes you a prime candidate to be a vessel of the grace of God in this world. You see, some of you are future church planters. Some of you are future high-level church leaders. Some of you are extraordinarily gifted disciple makers and generous servants of others. But you can't see past the mess of your own life right now. You deeply believe that because so many others seem more qualified than you uh, to be used by God, that he sort of just wants to give you busy work until he takes you home. And Jesus is looking at you and he's like, would you mind organizing that filing cabinet? You mind just, just go A to Z. And then when you're done, if you would reverse the alphabetical order, you think he just wants to give you busy work. Will you look at me? That's a lie. It's a lie. It wasn't Peter's qualification that made him useful in the hands of God. It was his relation to Jesus. Listen to this from Acts 4.13. Peter, that same flighty guy, is standing in front of the council of a city on trial, essentially. And here's what it says of Peter. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognize that they have been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus, y'all. It changed everything about them. Have you been with Jesus? Have you been with him? Some of us have let the cares of this world, this moment of suffering, get us over our first encounter with Jesus. Or we have allowed the pace of productivity to keep us from being near to him. We've forgotten the new name given to us by Jesus. Peter couldn't get over it. That's what kept him. Friend, you have a new name in Jesus Christ if you're in him. You are a beloved son or daughter. You are a spirit-filled missionary. You are a servant of the king. You want to know how to change the world? You've been wondering, write this down. Keep this in your notes. This is important. Here's how you change the world. Open the Bible every single morning. Reflect on what God is saying. And when you get clarity on what God is saying in his word, say yes, sir, to whatever he says. Believe it. Do it. Obey. If your life 
This is so important, you guys. If your life is focused on listening to your king and obeying his commands, your life will be a signpost, like a billboard that others can follow to Jesus. It was not Peter's ability that God used most to change the world. It was his availability. Are you available? Are you paying attention to the voice of your king and prepared, attentive to say yes to him and whatever he calls you to do? This is our author. This is the guy we're going to be spending time with who under inspiration of the spirit is going to help us learn to thrive in exile. But we don't just have an author, we have an audience. And Peter's really intentional to define the audience. I'm going to confess to you guys this morning, mass confession is good for the soul sometimes. So I am a really terrible foreign missionary. I'm so bad. Like, I'll, I'll be a little honest with you guys, okay? I, like, I'm a little bit of a first world diva, okay? I really like air conditioning, and I don't like my milk out of a box. I like it to be in the fridge, in a jug. So y'all can pray for me, right? That's a way that I have to die uh, to myself. But one of the first foreign mission trips that I went on, it was a surprisingly emotional experience for me as I was coming home. We flew into, I think it was Orlando Airport, and we had just flown in from another season. We land, and I walk out of the plane, walk up the thing that you walk up with, you get off of a plane, and I, I come out, and there's a giant American flag on the wall. And it was, I'm not like an overly patriotic guy or something, but I felt moved as I was walking out. It was like that flag to me represented safety. It represented help. It was a reminder of the privileges of my citizenship. It was a reminder that my country of origin would move heaven and earth to ensure my safety wherever I was in the world. That all the core privileges of my citizenship went with me wherever I traveled. And that I was coming back home onto home turf. You see, the audience of 1 Peter is living abroad. They're living out of the land of their citizenship. Look back at the Bible. It says um, at the end of verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Okay, let's stop there a minute. Peter was writing to followers of Jesus scattered all over Asia Minor. So think modern day Turkey, okay? And they are beginning to experience not just the joy of new life in Christ, but the cost of Christianity. They're starting to feel it. These churches were experiencing what you might call soft persecution, where they were being alienated from business. So people in the city wouldn't do business with them because they were Christians. Uh, their family relationships were deteriorating. So mom and dad would find out they had become a follower of Jesus, a believer in the resurrection. And they say, well, you're no son or daughter of mine out of here. Nobody's really killing these Christians at this point, but they were feeling an increased pressure. The world did not like what they were about and was less and less shy in letting them know. They are wondering, 
these early church believers, whether their citizenship in heaven is just a nice sentiment or if it's as real as Jesus claimed that it was. Like, think of the anxiety, the discouragement, the, the fear that comes along with being treated like an outsider. That's why Peter doesn't waste any time in his letter to fill these disciples with courage and with faith. He uses two really significant words right here to identify his audience and to remind them of their identity. Elect exiles. Elect exiles. Okay, let's break it down. Elect simply means chosen. When you see a word like this in the Bible, elect, predestined, chosen, something like that, they can make us nervous, but I want you to draw your attention to what Peter is trying to do right here. He's trying to encourage the people of God. He's saying to these discouraged, anxious Christians, hey, before the foundation of the world, before you could do anything to deserve it, God saw you and said, that's my kid. He said, that's my kid. He's saying, when Jesus went to the cross, your name was in his heart. You were loved. You were chosen to be far, part of this family far before you had any table manners. This wasn't a passive thing on God's, on God's part. Hear me. He pursued you. He went after you. Think about your own story, right? You weren't looking for Jesus. He came after you. But Peter doesn't just say that they're elect and chosen. He says that they are elect exiles. This is really important that he's tying these two themes together. An exile is a person who, for some reason, has been barred from their home country. A person whose residence is not in the country of their citizenship. What is Peter getting at right here? He's saying... You have been dispersed to make disciples. Your exile was on purpose. It was part of the sovereign plan of God. He's saying you are chosen specifically to live behind enemy lines, to live outside of the home team advantage. You are Navy SEALs. You have a purpose and a calling in all this. Do you know what happens in a person's soul when while you're in the heat of suffering, someone reminds you that there is something worth suffering for at play? You remember your marching orders, don't you? Like, hey, this isn't meaningless. This matters. You get your bearings again. You slow down. You say, okay, Lord, this matters. I know I'm suffering. I know this is hard. I know this is difficult, but I know you're doing something here. This isn't an accident. This was on purpose. In verse two, Peter unfolds this even more for his audience. Look back at verse two. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. He's saying, hey, people loved by God. God is deeply involved with the mess that you're in. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is deeply involved with it. The Father intimately knew you and loved you in eternity past. And guess what else, person that God loves? The Spirit is working in you to keep you walking one foot in front of the other in your suffering as you obey Jesus' command to make disciples. Keep going. Remember, God is purposing in this. He is doing something. In two words, Peter is reminding his readers that God has not left them. And, hear me, that they still have a job to do in the midst of their trials. That the mission isn't over the mission isn't canceled because you're taking some fire. Why does this matter? Here's the first th reason it matters. You can't be in exile if you're not a citizen. You can't be in exile if you're not a citizen. Christian, you need to understand that you were chosen as a citizen before you were in exile. Before you were sent out, God did not exile you because he hated you. God exiled you to send you on a mission with purpose. Jesus saved you from hell, hear me, but he also saved you to the mission. He saved you from hell. He snatched you out of the fire, but he also saved you to something. John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. You were chosen for a purpose in this world to make much of Jesus in the lives of others. You are a citizen purposefully sent into exile. And guess what? This morning, if you do not identify as a citizen of heaven, you can become one today. Believe in Jesus, who by his blood gets people who have no business being in God's presence warmly greeted as part of God's family. Like this isn't just a citizenship to a nation. This is a belonging to a family. That's what Jesus does. There's room for you here. The other reason this matters is because some of you have forgotten your marching orders. You've forgotten that there's still a mission, even though it's hard. You don't see your, your calling as a mom or as a student or as a builder or an entrepreneur as primarily a vehicle for you to live on the mission of God. You've let it begin to terminate on itself. And your life blends in so completely with the world around you, hear me, that nobody would even guess you were in exile. They wouldn't even guess that you have a different set of values and that you're following a different king than they are following. Fear of rejection, fear of getting labeled a bigot. Man, these are things that I feel. Or of people thinking that you're crazy is driving you far more than your calling from God as an elect exile. We got to step back into our calling, church family. We got to step back in. Exiles are supposed to stand out. You know why? Because this isn't your home. We're meant to stand out. See, our truth claims should be startling. Jesus isn't dead anymore. Our, our sexual ethics should be confronting to the world, directly but gently. 
Our disposition of joy in suffering should be confusing to the world. Guess what will happen when you actually stick your head up above the crowd, above the waterline, and you begin to actually embrace your identity as an exile? You know what's going to happen? You're going to suffer. It's going to cost you relational rent with people you love. You're going to get looked over for a promotion. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Welcome to church, right? <laughs> Congratulations. An invitation into suffering. But hear me, suffering is not generally evidence that you're not a good exile. It usually means you're being a faithful one. Okay, don't be a jerk. That's not what I'm giving you permission to do. Don't just brashly go into every room and try to offend every person that you can. That's not what I'm telling you to do. But if you are living as a compelling and honest witness to the gospel of Jesus, guess what? It's, you're going to cause some trouble. You're going to cause some trouble. Does your life evoke any questions from the watching world? Do they see your practices? Do they see your way of being and go, what is either really wrong or really right with this person? If it's not, if your life isn't questionable by any means, could it be that you have forgotten where your true citizenship lies? You may need to repent this morning. You may need to say to Jesus, man, I have been living as though I'm not a citizen of heaven. I've been living like a citizen of this world. And I recognize my life is supposed to be more an embassy of heaven. That's what it's supposed to be more like. We're not operating with a home field advantage, you guys. We're not. And that's just the way the Lord would have it. It's just the way he would have it. And number three, finally here, we get an assurance from Peter at the beginning of this introduction. If I'm honest with you this morning, there have been plenty of moments in this church planting journey for a variety of reasons where I start asking the question, is this even worth it? Like, this is really hard. It's painful. It's hard on my family. There, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get your sympathy up here. I'm just trying to be honest with you this morning. Is it worth it is a question that enters into my mind. When does it enter into yours? when you're following Jesus and it's actually beginning to cost you something, you find yourself asking the Lord, is it worth it? You see, the way that Peter is trying to assure his audience right here is by pointing them to where this whole thing is headed. He's trying to point them to where it headed. That's how he's giving them assurance that it actually is worth it. You don't invite somebody to suffer and then not tell them that it's going to be worth it, right? Suffering for, for its own self is nothing more than being a masochist, just liking pain. That's not what he's calling you to do here. He's calling you to suffer to an end. Look at the very last little thing he gives us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is a pastor. And he's telling us his desire for the people he's writing to here. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, he wants the unmerited favor of God, grace, 
the and and the rest, the the peace, the shalom that comes with it, to increase and increase and increase for these people. He's saying these things I want to you for you, this grace and this peace are not found by giving up and doing something easier. They're actually found by pressing in, by moving towards suffering. Where does a deep sense of the grace and peace of God come most clearly into focus? You're not going to like it. It's in obedience to his calling on your life. It's in obedience. It's the place that you'll find the pain of the rejection of this world. That's exactly where you'll find the nearest presence of God. The experience of his goodness and grace. You see, some of us want that deep intimacy with God, that grace and peace without obedience to God. Like if you were honest in your heart, there's this sort of, man, I have no interest in anything more than really attending church on Sundays, but it would be really great if I had a vibrant sense of the presence of God in my life, Jesus. That would be great. Intimacy is tied to obedience, hear me, because there is life in obedience. There's life, it's nourishing. The more costly the obedience, the greater the intimacy Today, if you are tired of living in exile without the hope that's afforded to you in Jesus, guess what? God wants to multiply his grace and his peace in your life this morning. I am not talking to you about earning your salvation here. I am talking to you about experiencing the privilege of your salvation that is yours by grace. Which you know what that is? The privilege of your salvation? It's knowing him. Having him, being with him. Jesus is a real person, fully God, fully man, ruling over the universe right now. And if you are in Christ, guess what? He is yours. He's yours. And the privilege of obedience is intimacy with him. Band, you guys can go ahead and come up. I'm almost done here. There was no obedience in the history of the universe that cost more than the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the beloved son of heaven, embraced life as an exile. I mean, the one who belongs in fellowship with the Father more than anyone else in this universe. You know what he did? He willingly lived below his privilege for the sake of his mission to rescue you. He did it. It cost him everything. Why? Because every place that Peter failed and every place that you failed was paid for by his death. Every, every privilege of being chosen by God became yours when Jesus paid for it through the sprinkling of his blood. And this morning, his resurrection proved that he was not just gracious and not just peaceful. He was not a being who had a few attributes. 
His resurrection proved that he is an eternal fountain of grace and peace. He is the source of intimacy and joy that you and I desperately, desperately need. He showed us that he can use suffering for good in and through our lives. You see, that's the shape of the cross. God uses the suffering of Jesus to bring about the blessing of the nations. It's the same pattern of life that he's given to you. That as you suffer for a little while, God can use it for something far greater than you can imagine. What if, what if New City family, if instead of trying to avoid the cost of being in exile, we leaned into it the way that Jesus did? We just finally said, hey, Jesus, I am willing to suffering with, suffer with you because I know you're going to use it. I'm going to put my neck on the line. I'm going to put skin in the game here. Maybe it is as simple as letting someone in your life who doesn't know you're a Christian know that you are a Christian. It's going to invite questions. It's going to invite conversation. Maybe it means you stop making excuses for why you aren't the one to really make an impact in the kingdom of God because fill in the blank. And instead you lean into the calling that you know God is putting on your life. Maybe this morning you are living a costless Christianity and you need to cause some holy trouble. You need to actually stick your head above the waterline. Or maybe right now there is a place where you are suffering for being a Christian and you are kicking and screaming your way through, but you need to just trust the Lord with it. You need to trust him. Friends, this is the way we thrive in exile. And I'm praying that we take Jesus up on it today. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we're so bad at leaning into suffering because it's just so hard. And you know it well. You know with them better, better than anyone else that suffering is hard. We're praying for a new level of courage. We want our city to know that Jesus is really alive, that he really makes all things new. But that doesn't just cost me, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. We're going to have to suffer with you together. We're going to have to say yes. So by your spirit right now, will you give us the courage to say yes? To stand in solidarity with Jesus who has stood for some reason in solidarity with us. Will you do it this morning? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, New City.